Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. We're going to start out today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, start in verse 4 maybe, just to get some context. Uh, It says, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now, you see there he describes the the persecution that these Thessalonians had been enduring. And one of the things he uses to comfort them is the fact that these unbelievers that are persecuting them, God is going to take vengeance on them. There's, There's vengeance. It's a righteous, he mentions the righteous judgment of God. Uh, it's, it's not a, an unrighteous judgment. God isn't being unfair in this vengeance that he's going to bring about. But it's a righteous judgment of God. And these believers who, who were suffering, he tells them, much like, much like with Lazarus and the rich man. Remember how Lazarus had suffered in this life and then he was comforted where the rich man who had, who had lived, you know, lived a, a very prosperous life and was you know, even unwilling to, to even take much pity on somebody like Lazarus, he was comforted in this life, and he received torment there in, in hell. And likewise here, Paul tells these believers, you're suffering now, and there's people at whose hand you're suffering, but there's going to be vengeance of God. In fact, one of the, the reasons for that eternal torment, if you think about it in this way, the, the love of God for the church, and, and you know, in this context where he's talking about these persecutors, the love of God for the church is so great that it's demonstrated in the vengeance against these people who would persecute the church. All right? Now, again, that may not necessarily, I, I think that... that uh, line of thinking would apply to unbelievers in general as well, but uh, specifically for these persecutors, the vengeance of God is an expression of his love for the church. I mean, if, if someone is, is harming someone that you love, um, there's, you know, there's some righteous vengeance there, right? And I want you to notice it mentions inflaming fire. There's fire involved in this vengeance of God. I heard a man uh, talking about... Um, Luke 16, the passage we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, and he said, there is no fire in Luke 16. Well, when the rich man says to Lazar, or asks Abraham to send Lazarus to come and cool his tongue, he says, I'm tormented in this flame. 
Now, that doesn't mean it's the kind of fire you're going to go and, you know, make a, make a bonfire in your backyard. It, this is something that affects the soul, right? This isn't just a physical thing, but it is described as fire and as flame. And you see, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. To obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe, to trust in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for your salvation. That's what obeying the gospel is. It's to believe that gospel message. This is not just for people who, who you know, tried their best and didn't measure up. Um, that's, that's not the issue. Uh, the issue there when it talks about obeying the gospel is that they didn't believe the gospel. And that's the thing that separates between those that are going to be in in eternal torment and those that are going to have eternal life is, have they believed the gospel? Uh, It says that they will be punished with everlasting destruction. Now, if you just destroy something and it's, it's gone and it's annihilated, and that's the term for this idea that that, uh, you know, the unbelievers cast into hell and they're just burnt up and they're gone. That's called annihilation. Um, if, if you just destroy something and it's annihilated, then you're not punishing it with an everlasting destruction. I mean, that would be a one-time destruction and it's over with. But this is something that goes on forever. It is an everlasting destruction and an everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, a lot of this debate... Uh, has to do with this word, everlasting. And, and we're going to look at some interesting things about that before we're done today. But I want you to turn over to the book of Revelation. It is true, it is true that hell is a temporary place. That is a true statement. But that doesn't mean the torment is temporary. Here in Revelation chapter 20, Verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, hell is, is not the eternal place of torment. Hell here is cast into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is that place of eternal torment. And uh, so that's something sometimes people get, get confused about. It is true that hell is a temporary place. But you see, hell is cast into, and the people who were in hell are cast into the lake of fire, which is an eternal state. Uh, In fact, if you go, I I started reading in verse 12 there. If you go back to verse 10 in Revelation 20. Now, this is talking about the the devil himself and the beast and the false prophet. It says in Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and notice what it says, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's eternal torment, Revelation 20, verse 10. Now, that's talking specifically about the devil and the beast and the false prophet. But you see, there's no room in that statement for the devil to ever wind up with eternal life with God in heaven. He's tormented day and night, forever and ever. Along with the beast and the false prophet. Um, if you go back to, to Revelation chapter 14, 
That is not a fate only for the devil and the beast and the false prophet. If you look at uh, Revelation 14, verse 11, uh, not exactly the same wording here, but here it's talking about those who receive the mark of the beast, who reject the Lord God and instead worship the Antichrist as God, and they receive that mark in their forehead. You see in verse 9 of Revelation 14, it says, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, to try and twist that verse in some way to say that it, it, the torment there does not last forever, and these are just you know other unbelievers here, not the devil, not the beast, not the false prophet, but those that followed them, to, to twist that verse, you'd have to do a lot of work. Uh, to try and twist that verse to say anything other than what it pretty obviously says, which is that the torment lasts forever. They're tormented. The smoke of that torment ascends up forever and ever. It mentions day and night, just like it did with, with uh, the devil. Um, it says they had no rest, day nor night. And so these are passages that are describing that, that eternal state. And you see it's something that for the unbeliever that goes on forever and ever. There's no indication. You don't have any indication anywhere in the Bible that there is some point after this where that stops. I mean, when it says forever and ever, it means forever and ever. Now, the, the argument against this, uh, when, when people want to, want to explain away these verses, um, what they always wind up doing is they will say, well, it's a mistranslation, okay? When it says forever, when it says everlasting, and this, this seems to be the argument over and over and over again. And I'll tell you that whenever you hear somebody trying to teach some new doctrine on the basis of a mistranslation in the King James Bible, that ought to send up a, a red flag for you. Okay? Um, because, first of all, many of the people that make these arguments about mistranslation, uh, they, they don't really know the, those languages themselves. They don't know the Greek language or haven't done any translation work from Greek into English. Most of the time, they say that because they heard somebody else say it and they trust that he knows what he's talking about. Unfortunately, he said it because he heard somebody else say it and he trusted what they knew or trusted they knew what they were talking about. All right. And oftentimes, the, the, the most amount of actual, you know, actual research or actual verification that somebody has tried to put into that is that they looked up a word in Strong's Concordance and looked through the list of definitions, picked out one that they thought fit and said, well, see, it's a mistranslation. Um, you know, keep in mind, when you use Strong's Concordance, and I think everybody ought to have a copy of Strong's Concordance, it's a valuable thing in studying the Bible. It's a valuable thing because it'll let you cross-reference, it'll let you study through the Bible. If you don't know what a, what a concordance is, what it does is you can look up any word that's in the Bible, and it will tell you every verse where that word appears in the English Bible. And you can do it with the, the big, thick Strong's Concordance. Nowadays, it's a lot easier to use a Bible study program on your computer. And it'll, you know, it'll pull up every verse. And you can learn a lot of interesting things in the Bible that way, doing word studies in, in that way. But what people do is, for instance, in Strong's Concordance, it also has a Hebrew and a Greek dictionary in the back so that you can look up the Hebrew and, and Greek words. Well, you know that in English... 
If you're trying to define an English word, you see some word you don't know in a book or something, and you look it up, you can't, English words, just like any other words in any other language, you can have several definitions for the same word. And you can't just go and pick out which definition you like the best. You've got to try and figure out, well, which, you know, which definition was the author thinking of when they used the word. All right? And, you know, so, so realize that when people are saying, when they're claiming this mistranslation, what they're saying is, I mean, for that to be a valid argument, they would have to demonstrate why their translation is more valid than what, for instance, the King James translator's translation would have been. I'll tell you that my conviction is I, I know of no error in the King James Bible. Okay? And I've heard people claim there are and looked at their arguments, and usually when you look into it, you find the King James translators were right in their translation. That's always been the case for me. If you know of, a, of an error there, um, I'd, be, I'd be happy to hear the, the argument. But the reality is that most of the people who claim that there are errors in the translation have never done any kind of translation themselves and don't know the languages that, that the Bible's translated out of. And so what they do is they take, for instance, the word, the word that's translated as everlasting is the word aeonios. It's, it's, we would use the word eon. Uh, an eon is a, a long period of time. It's an age, right? Sometimes it's translated that way in the Bible. An eon is an age. And because the, the word that's translated as everlasting has a root in that word eon or, or age, people will say, you see, it's not everlasting. It doesn't last forever. It just lasts for an age. It's an, they say it's not everlasting. It's age-lasting. It's age-lasting torment. All right? And so this is the argument. The problem is, if you're going to start redefining terms, if you're going to, to start claiming mistranslations, you have to be consistent with that. And let us look at some of the other things that the Bible uses the same word to describe. I want you to go to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And most of the rest of the verses we're going to look at today are going to use this term everlasting. And we want to think about how the, how the word's used in these other places. Romans chapter 16, uh, right near the end of the book of Romans... Verse 25 says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets uh, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. See what it calls God there? It says God is everlasting. Now, that's exactly the same word. Now, nobody would come along and say, well, it doesn't really mean that God is eternal. It just means he lasts for a long period of time. Right? Nobody would come along and make that argument. Um, they, you know, they'll, they'll acknowledge that when it's applied to God, it means forever and ever. It means everlasting. But for some reason, they'll take and, you know, when it talks about torment, they'll take exactly the same word and say, oh, no, there it doesn't mean forever. God is an everlasting God. God, in fact, the, the same term that's used can refer to eternity future or eternity past. Uh, the scripture says that, that the Lord is from everlasting, which means back, you know, all the, all the way back. Or you can't even say all the way back because it just keeps on going, right? Uh, he's everlasting from eternity past to eternity future. 
Uh, it, it's not, he's not age-lasting. He doesn't just last for an age and, and, and then cease to exist. But he's everlasting. Let's look at some other things that the, the Bible says are forever. We already saw it says that God is the everlasting God. And if God is the everlasting God, there are some things that pertain to God that are everlasting as well. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If God is everlasting, um, his kingdom as well is everlasting. It's not, an, it's not age lasting. No, it's certainly true there's a, there's a progression in that kingdom. There's a millennial kingdom, which is the first thousand years of that, and there's certain events that, that happen during that time. But after that uh, great white throne that we saw in Revelation, and after the dead are cast into the lake of fire, um, you have uh, a King, not really a new kingdom, but a, but a continuation of that kingdom that goes on forever. It's everlasting. It doesn't come to an end. Uh, and if you, you know, if you study that word kingdom and you look at it throughout the Bible, and it'll talk about a kingdom that will never end. Because if God is everlasting, then his kingdom, his rulership, is everlasting as well. Uh, we, we talk about, go back to Romans again, Romans chapter 6. Verse 22, Romans chapter 6, verse 22 says, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the life that believers have is described as being everlasting in the same way that the torment that unbelievers have is called everlasting which tells you that the torment for the unbelievers lasts as long as the life does for the believers. They're, they're the same. They're both everlasting. Same, same Greek word, uh, same word in your English Bible, because the duration of them is the same. You can't make the torment finite and yet leave the life as being eternal and infinite. You see, whatever you say about the one is going to affect the other. If, if they're both everlasting, if it's age-lasting, then they both have to be age-lasting. If it's everlasting, they both have to be everlasting. And I don't know anybody who claims that the life there is only something that lasts for an age. Uh, it's obvious that the life is everlasting life. In fact, um, you know, the, the reality is that every individual is going to be somewhere for eternity. Now, you can't, the, the Bible even describes what happens with the dead, with the unbelieving dead, as a resurrection. It says that they're, they're raised to uh, ever, also uses everlasting, their everlasting contempt. Um, it talks about a resurrection of the just and, un, the, and the unjust. Everybody is resurrected. The thing is that some are resurrected to enter into life, some are resurrected to enter into this eternal destruction, this eternal torment. And you can't call that life. Now, it's existence, right? Those people are in existence. They're not annihilated. They don't pass out of existence. They're in existence, but it is really, you could refer to it as an eternal death. Remember that life and death, often when they're talked about biblically, mean, have a little bit different meaning than how we might define them. Death, in the Bible, 
always is some kind of separation. Now, physical death is a separation of the soul and spirit from the body. But when the, when the scripture says that uh, before, before someone becomes a believer that they were dead in trespasses and sins, what does it mean when it says they're dead in trespasses and sins? It means they're separated from God in trespasses and sins. And I think you'll find the word dead and death and die, those are used in a lot of different ways in the Bible, but you'll find they always involve some sort of separation. Now, you can't call what the unbeliever is going to experience in eternal torment, you can't call that eternal life. They exist, they're conscious, but they're in eternal death, really is what it is. It's an eternal separation from God. Um, it's a, it's a, so there's a resurrection unto eternal life, and there's a resurrection unto eternal death. And again, whatever you say about the one, as far as its duration, has to apply to the other, because it's the exact same word that's used. One, one last verse here uh, with talking about everlasting. Uh, go to the book of Jude. Uh, you realize that this whole, this whole issue of torment was, was not originally designed for man at all. Now, certainly God knew in his foreknowledge uh, what, you know, what all was going to take place with the fall of man and all of those things. But realize that the scripture says that that, that fire, that fire of torment was created for the devil and his angels. Now, the reason it affects man is because man in the fall enlisted with the devil and his angels and became a part of that. That's why man in the natural state are called children of disobedience. Okay, And so man has, takes a part in that thing that was created for the devil and his angels. And here in Jude, it, it describes uh, part of that judgment of these angels in... Verse 6 of Jude, Jude only has one chapter, and in verse 6 it says, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. And what it's referring to there is if you go back in the book of of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6, it describes some beings that are called the sons of God. Now that's a term in the Old Testament that is used to refer to angels, sons of God in Job Job 38, they're called sons of God in uh, Job, several times in the book of Job. Um, that's a term in the Old Testament that refers to the angels. And it talks about in Genesis 6 about how these angels took human wives. They, you know, they took on a, a human form and took human wives and had children with them. And that's where the giants that are described in the Bible came from. That's the angels it's describing here. They kept not their first estate, but they left their habitation. It says, he hath reserved in, notice what it says, everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And you see how it describes that judgment among the angels there, first of all, that they're in in everlasting chains under the judgment of the great day. The, The great white throne describes primarily the judgment of of unbelieving men there, but realize there's a a judgment of angels as well. These angels that it describes here are being held for trial at the judgment of that great day, and they're held with everlasting chains. Now, the chains they're bound with are everlasting chains. 
and they aren't, they aren't loosed out of those chains. Those angels find their way into the lake of fire as well. And you see it describes, this isn't something that applies just to the angels, but it describes the wickedness of those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and how they as well suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. Now what, there was fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, that destroyed those cities of the plain there, but that was not eternal fire. That was a fire that came down from heaven, it consumed the cities and it was over. But you see there's, there's a vengeance of eternal fire that... that uh, those people of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to suffer along with the rest of the unbelievers. And so I trust that just, just you know, that string of verses is enough for you to see that there's no room in the Bible. There's no room in, in these passages of Scripture to make that torment some temporary thing. Uh, of course, our responsibility as, as believers is not to make the Bible fit what we want to be true, but to believe what the Bible says is true and to trust in the, the righteousness of God. You realize that in eternity, we aren't going to, to spend all of our time worrying about those people that, that aren't there. I think we'll, we'll see things the way God see, sees things. And, and, you know, really to try and, you know, to try and twist these things and make the Bible say what it doesn't say is, I mean, it's a, it's a denial of what God's will is and really of who God is. People have made up a God of their own liking that, that fits better with who they want God to be, and they've ignored who God really says that he is in the Bible. Um, God has a vengeance towards sin. He has a hatred towards sin. And he will express that vengeance here in that, in that eternal torment. Now, you think about what urgency that that makes for us to tell people the good news about what Christ accomplished. Because people don't have to go there. They don't have to suffer that eternal torment. Um, there's a provision made for man to escape that through the grace of God, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, if... You know, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're trusting in your goodness or your religiousness or, or, you know, those kinds of things, you're trusting in yourself to save yourself, you are headed to that place that's described there. You're headed for that everlasting torment. Uh, the, the everlasting life is not a reward for good works because you couldn't do enough good works to earn it. Um, in fact, not only can you not do enough good works, the scripture says there is none that doeth good at all. I mean, much less enough good. It just says there's none that doeth good, no, not one. But the Lord Jesus Christ, what he suffered on the cross of Calvary was torment. He suffered the torment that is due to sin. Now, Christ didn't have to suffer for eternity to pay for the sins of mankind because he's not like us, right? I mean, those people that are suffering there in that eternal torment are suffering for their own sins. But Jesus Christ, as God in human flesh, having no sins of his own to, to pay for, he could suffer in those few hours of torment on the cross of Calvary, he could suffer for the sins of mankind for, for eternity. What I'm saying is that his, his suffering on the cross of Calvary was the equivalent of that eternal suffering for sin in the lake of fire. Now, some people question how Christ could do that, realize that, uh, you know, when, when the person is paying for their own sins in the lake of fire, they're paying for eternity. They're kind of, it's kind of like they're paying off the debt with pennies. Christ was paying with $100 bills, right? I mean, Christ's suffering is of such a, a greater value than our suffering that he could, he could 
suffer the equivalent, he could have the equivalent of that eternal torment in those few hours of suffering on the cross of Calvary, right? I mean, he was paying in a, in a different currency than what we would pay in. And um, he, I mean, when you consider that, that's what he went through. You can understand why Christ, the night before his crucifixion, would ask the Father that that cup would pass from him. Because he was suffering the just judgment of God upon sin. And what a, what a gift that he would give, that he would do that willingly on our behalf. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, if we're going to be honest with ourselves and believe what the Bible says, every person here, we deserve that eternal torment. If, if God were just to execute his justice, that is what we would deserve. But we can thank God that he found a way to reconcile his justice with his mercy and with his grace so that his justice could be satisfied with the payment of Christ and yet he could offer to us eternal life through simple faith in what Christ did for us. And that's, that's the issue. You see what Paul said uh, there in that passage we started out in. He said that that everlasting destruction, that flaming fire, was for those who obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and my prayer for you this morning is that you have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have trusted what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that you're trusting in that alone and not, not yourself, not anything you can do, not anything of your own ability or your own merit, but what Christ accomplished at Calvary. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.